It used to be that this show had a grand tradition of running out of ideas while a deadline approached. Sort of like a rabbit caught in the headlights of an oncoming car, with pretty much similar results. It doesn't do the car much damage, but the rabbit is never quite the same again. When such situations arose, it was often the wisest course to scour our research archives of previous shows to see if there were any scraps lying about that wouldn't need much additional research and could be hastily written together with a few of its fellows into a script of the proper length. Such efforts came to be known as lost episodes because that sort of implied we had meant to include them in their original episodes, but didn't for reasons to do with the overall length of an episode or degree of digression. Along the way, we'd sweep up other bits brought to our attention by our listeners or smaller topics that simply weren't big enough for an entire episode of their own. In this way, we'd keep things tidy, get an easy episode out the door, and duck aside just as the first steel-belted radial was coming into focus. But then, of course, things changed. And along with those changes came the decision to reserve what would normally have been the contents of a lost episode for a special short episode put out once a month for our backers, first on Patreon, and then exclusively on Buy Me a Coffee. Slash Fiddleback if you're interested in contributing. And since I was doing that, the lost episodes disappeared, becoming more or less truly lost. Or at least for a time. But again, things kept changing, and after a time the bonus episodes became too much, and it was wisest to bring them to a close in favor of just trying to get regular episodes out. Regularly. Which, granted, did not work especially well, but at least I wasn't not producing two audio features and could instead focus on not producing one. Still, there is a fondness in my heart for those lovely little Footnote 2 installments. Someday they might come back, but who knows. So here I sit with no particular deadline, having learned that, like Douglas Adams, I really do enjoy the sound they make as they go whooshing by, and a stack of cast-offs and trimmings from previous episodes that have no particular home. They're just hanging around doing not much of anything. What to do, what to do. Well, how about this? How about I write a lengthy and pointless introduction to an episode you already know the name of, in which I attempt to engage your interest in the plight of the amateur podcaster when it comes to creating more content for his listening public. I can pat it out with a couple of anecdotes about times gone by, re-explain a premise you were probably already familiar with from previous such episodes, and then, when that turns out to be not quite long enough, I can cross the fourth wall and go all meta on you. Oh, and I can work in a request for your support via a Buy Me A Coffee membership in the main body of the script, rather than all the way at the end. Which I have now done twice. Slash Fiddleback if you're interested in contributing. And so, without further ado, let me reintroduce you to what turns out to be not only an easy out for the creator, but a fan favorite as well. The 17th in our series of Lost Episodes, Lost Episode 17. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. The first lost item is the Nokia 3310 cellular phone and how it represents the current phenomena of nostalgic consumption. Which, of course, is wrapped up in two previous episodes about nostalgia. 
See, there is a trend currently, I'm sure you've noticed, for the selling of things not based on whether they are good or necessary or of any value whatsoever, but rather on the amount of nostalgic feeling they can invoke. And the little Nokia phone everyone loves is a prime example of that. Tough, durable, and an absolute brick in terms of both design and smartness, the 3310 was well-loved and well-used and saw many different iterations of its basic design over the lifespan of the device. It wasn't particularly innovative when it came out in September of 2000, but it didn't need to be. It just needed to do the job of making phone calls and occasionally playing a game of Snake without bits falling off it every time it was touched, which was something of a problem for cell phones back then. The 3310 was a very solidly built phone with few, if any, moving parts to break. People genuinely loved it, and even today there are those who actually owned one who still swear by it. So what does that have to do with nostalgia and nostalgic consumption? Well, that's easy enough to explain. See, a few years ago, Nokia noticed how much love there still was for their little phone, and someone in the boardroom said, hey, we'd like to keep making some money, why don't we do the 3310 again? Except the company making the phone wasn't Nokia anymore, and the phone made lacked some things we'd all become used to in the ensuing 17 years. But that didn't matter, because HMD Global, new owners of the Nokia brand name, weren't going to sell you the new 2017 version of the 3310 based on what it could or couldn't do. Not really. Instead, they were going to sell you the new phone based on how you felt about the old phone. Which is how nostalgic consumption works. See, the basic idea is that you really, really like some things that aren't around anymore. And for a variety of reasons, as we discussed in our episodes. Some things, when you first experienced them, made you feel happy or safe or as if you had accomplished something by having them or what have you. Basically, your brain decided you had met a need and rewarded you with a little jolt of the chemical happy sauce known as dopamine to reinforce the lesson. When presented with a new thing that is related to the old thing you liked and got rewarded for, your brain said, hey, that's probably going to be good too. Let's have some more dopamine, why not? Which is the whole point. The manufacturers of the new 3310 didn't want you to consider this new phone as a product of the current market and how good it might or might not be compared to other current offerings. What they really wanted you to do was to remember how good the old 3310 was when compared to the market of 17 years ago and conclude that this new version was going to be just as good now as the old one was then. It's called reinstantiation. Essentially, pretending that what was true in the past is also true in the present. And lots of products really hope you rely on it rather than a clear-eyed view of the present reality. But that's just one way in which manufacturers and products ask you to buy the nostalgia instead of the reality. Even more profitable is the idea of reenactment, the idea that a product represents a morally superior time in the past that is sorely lacking in the modern day. Take, for example, many, many American-made brands of the past. Like the label Nokia, brands like RCA, Magnavox, Bell & Howell, and others were once well-regarded brands which had a certain amount of cachet with the American buying public. Throughout the 20th century, they all had reputations for turning out quality, long-lasting goods. Certainly, in comparison to early efforts from Japanese manufacturers in the 70s, 
trying to make inroads to the American market. Buy American became the refrain of many consumers even in the face of the improving quality of Japanese goods. But unfortunately, those same American brands failed to adapt as Japanese goods became better and better, relying instead on their made-in-America status to keep them afloat. Rather than adapt, they banked on the morally superior position of coming from home turf, and failed to survive as viable independent entities. RCA today is owned by the Technicolor Company and Sony Music Entertainment. Magnavox is currently owned by the Dutch company Philips, and Bell & Howell is owned by an investment company. All of their once prestigious names are now just slapped willy-nilly on any product anyone cares to mention for an appropriately sized licensing fee. It's the same with other once well-known brands. None of them are actually made by who they say they are. There's no particular drive to manufacture them in the USA, but people still hold the mindset that Buy American is a morally superior position, and so the names are used to engender that belief in the new product. You aren't buying the product on its own merit. You're buying it because it carries the name of something that was once made here, even though it no longer is. Nostalgic consumption also relies on something called reappropriation. Now immediately, some of you are going to start jumping up and down in your chairs because you've heard the word appropriation and you think you know where this is going. We're stealing things from other cultures to which we do not belong. And you're sort of half right. The difference is, when it comes to nostalgia, the culture we are stealing from is ourselves. Well, our past selves. There was literally no reason to remake and release the new Nokia 3310 branded as a Nokia 3310. It is an ugly, chunky, brick-like phone with no particular aesthetic value, especially as compared to other phones released in 2017. There's no reason for it to look like the old phone. Nothing about that design had anything to do with how modern phones looked or worked, nor was that particular look necessary to the function of the phone. So why does it look like a slightly modified version of the old 3310? Well, because to a certain segment of the population, it was kitschy and sort of retro-cool. It looked like something out of the past, and therefore had more theoretical value than something of its own time period. And importantly, very few of the people who bought the new phone had ever experienced the old phone. Lifting it from the past and bringing it to the present day meant that Nokia could sell an experience many of its customers had never had but had often heard about. They could become part of the Nokia 3310 fan club. They could take the old phone and make it their own. Reappropriation. Of course, there's a bit more to it than that, but you can see the tactics in play across all sorts of different products. Movies that don't need remakes but get them anyway, TV shows that claim to be new versions of older shows, books that rewrite or reframe older books, electronic devices made last week to look like they came out of the 60s, a fascination with fashion from the catwalks of the 70s. It's all trading on your sense of nostalgia and hoping you won't really notice how good something is or isn't in the here and now. There will be more Star Wars films because you like Star Wars in the 70s and 80s. There will be more remakes of films from 20 years ago because you liked them 20 years ago. 
Lava lamps will continue to be a thing because they remain quirky and kitschy. Your childhood will continue being resold to you because you once felt happy and content when you didn't know any better. It's easier to trade off your emotions than it is to sell a thing on its own merits. This is nostalgic consumption. Remember how much you used to enjoy Lost Episodes? Back when we talked about the advent of spiritualism in the episode of the same name, we mentioned Franz Mesmer and Mesmerism as one of the contributors to what was soon to become the spiritualism movement. Except, it only became Mesmerism sometime after Franz Mesmer had developed it. Initially, he called it Animal Magnetism. And that might have caused some of you to do a double-take, because traditionally, we understand animal magnetism to mean something else entirely today. What Franz meant was basically hypnotism. What you and I thought upon hearing animal magnetism was... Well, it was more or less the ability for someone to immediately get someone else to start thinking about going to see their etchings just by walking into a room. The sort of strong attraction between people that means cameras are going to zoom in to really tight reaction shots of the couple in question and then cut away just as the good bits start. Fortunately, we in the gaming world have a much less confusing term for it. That means not only do we not have to make sure that things fade to black, but also that etchings will only rarely play a part in our day-to-day. -day. We gamers call it charisma. Well, okay, we lied about the less confusing part. Charisma is exactly the sort of ability score, unlike, say, strength, constitution, and dexterity, that gets people all hot and bothered because they don't really understand what it means, how it works, or what to do with it if they actually have some. Which many, many RPG characters do not. On the one hand, because it's so poorly understood that it becomes the de facto dump stat into which the bare minimum of character points and thus effort are put, and on the other hand, because those who do have it and have put points into it immediately use it in a way that guarantees they haven't really got any charisma after all. The confusion about charisma comes down to the fact that it means two fundamentally different things, and which thing Gygax and company meant isn't entirely clear. So of course, they must have meant both. How do we know this? because they used charisma in two completely different ways when building character classes, and it has carried over even into the modern version of D&D. What you want to focus on is each class's primary ability, or rather, primary abilities, because depending on what flavor of a particular class you make, you might have different primary abilities to back your skills up with. And the reason that's a terrible idea is a discussion for another day. In any case, by taking notes of each class's primary abilities, you quickly find that the Bard, the Sorcerer, the Warlock, and half of the Paladin rely on Charisma. Now all you have to do is make that make sense. Why should these four classes be Charisma-focused? Well, given that we usually associate Charisma with the idea of personal attraction, the Bard sort of makes sense. The animal magnetism of the Bard helps them perform and hold an audience's attention. It makes the people around them more willing to hear what the bard might be saying or singing or playing. Setting aside how poorly named the bard class is, see our episode, 
it makes a kind of sense that they should rely on charisma as their main ability. And that's the first kind of charisma, personality charisma. The belief in a group of people that a particular individual is somehow more special than everyone else, more capable, more effective, and more authoritative than others. Someone worthy of being listened to and followed. Bards and performers in general, both in and outside of the game world, need this sort of charisma in order to perform. They need the people around them to believe that something special and unique to this particular performer is happening in order to hold their attention. But where things start to get confusing is that this is also the same sort of charisma that is in play when someone walks into a room and automatically commands the attention of everyone else. Those people about whom there is a certain something that makes them seem more interesting, attractive, or in charge than anyone else in the room. It's never quite clear what exactly it is. A certain je ne sais quoi, which we call charisma just so it has a name. The thing to know about personality charisma, though, is that it is not a property of the individual in question, but rather a property conferred on that individual by the people around them. In a different room, with a different audience, they might not have any charisma at all. Think of an unspecified political candidate entering a room of their supporters. Lots of charisma to go around, all of it coming from folks who are aligned with that particular individual. Now. Imagine them walking into a room full of their political opponents. Very little charisma to be found. The other kind of charisma, and the reason the charisma stat gets confusing, is the kind bestowed upon an individual by divine authority. Divinely bestowed charisma is a religious concept that dates at least as far back as biblical times. The idea being that God has picked you out of the crowd for some special purpose and given you the spiritual gift of charisma whereby others may know that you are one of his chosen and by which you were given the authority to do whatever it was you were doing. But this was a working charisma with a job to do. Especially revered Christian figures, your Jesuses and your Marys and gradually various saints and other important individuals, for example, would display moments of charismatic glory to show that they had what the ancient Greeks called charis, grace or favor. Generally, in the form of a sort of inner glow while something was happening to or through them. You know, like halos. Now in D&D, sorcerers and warlocks need the charisma stat, not because they need big crowds of people to follow along with them singing songs and dancing, but because they work with forces beyond the understanding of mere mortals, and need to have a strong personality to avoid being subsumed by entities which are as likely to destroy them as they are to make someone else go permanently poof. And since we more or less equate personality with charisma, that's the stat that was put into use rather than creating a new one labeled personality or maybe even arrogance given the context. Whether it be tapping into the universal flow of magic or lightly tapping Cthulhu on the shoulder and saying, pretty please, you have to show you are the worthy by resisting the ill effects of the forces you are meddling with. The stronger your sense of self, the more capable you are of displaying the grace and favor of your cosmic being of choice. And by exercising your charis, those around you would have no choice but to accept that you were what you said you were, an emissary of a great old one, or one who has tapped into the primal streams of magic. 
For sorcerers and warlocks, charisma is not only how they hang on to their continued existence, it is the badge by which they show their authority to those around them. And it's the conflict between divinely bestowed charisma and personality charisma, one coming from your deity and one coming from the people around you, that makes the charisma stat kind of a mess to understand. Ultimately, you have to decide how best to use it and how it applies to whom. One thing is for certain though, having a 20 charisma does not automatically mean all the ladies want to see your etchings. As for why paladins are all messed up, see our episode. In fact, see all our episodes. I'm sure they'll bring back fond memories and they'll help fill in any little gaps you might have left. And if there are still some gaps left unfilled after you've listened to all that, drop me a line at any one of our contact points and let me know what you want to know. Because there will be more lost episodes. I have it on the best authority. Thank you for listening to this episode of GM Word of the Week. If you want to drop me a line with a question for a future episode, then listen carefully to the following. This episode is a Fiddleback production and was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey. Find more episodes at gmwordoftheweek.com and follow the show on Twitter at gmwotw. You can also email me at gmwotw at gmail.com. You can help support the show at buymeacoffee.com slash fiddleback with both one-time and ongoing pledges. Music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions, home of minimalist acoustic music for production and pleasure. Visit them at sessions.blue.